1: Hello, and welcome to the Slate Political Gap Fest for January 20th, 2022, the Has It Only Been a Year edition. I am David Plotz of CityCast. I'm here in Washington, D.C., in my home. I'm joined by John Dickerson of CBS's Sunday Morning from his home in New York City. Hello, John.
2: Up here on the top floor, Garrett. Good morning, David.
1: And by Emily Bazelon, who appears not to be in her home, but to be in a horror movie of some sort, (laughs) in a very murky space where... I am expecting some sort of killer or apparition to appear behind her at any moment. Oh, wait. She turned the light on. Maybe she is in her home in New Haven, Connecticut. Emily well, Now she on. just
2: looks like she's turned the light on with the uh, evil thing that's coming from behind her to like, <laughs>
1: this, better illuminate Yeah, the evil thing
2: loves light. Oh, I'm uh, so hello, glad Emily. to be
3: here with you guys this morning. This is really, <laughs> this bodes so well.
2: Well, maybe our listeners should understand what you're talking about, David.
1: Just, just that Emily, for some combination of New Haven gloom and bad camera work and uh, poor lighting within the Bazelon house, just truly looks like she's on, a, on some kind of sell, one of those horror movie scenes where the, the, the actor, it's, maybe it's like a, 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 a verite horror movie where they're filming themselves. And it just, it looked alarming. They're slightly it's slightly Blair greenish, Witch vibe. It's a Blair Witch vibe. Maybe you know, should turn the camera off. To date off. ourselves. Spare everybody. No, no. All right, continue
3: on. I'll just force you to keep looking at this strange picture.
1: This week, President Biden celebrates, I'm going to use that verb, celebrates one year as president with extremely low approval ratings, setbacks at every turn, and a defeat in the Senate the very night before his anniversary. What can he do, if anything, to reverse what's going on? Then the Supreme Court, very busy Supreme Court, blocked the Biden administration's vax or test mandate for employers, a ruling that could preview, that could presage a much larger change in law that could massively decrease the power of the federal government. Emily will explain that in very interesting ways. And then Virginia Governor Glenn Youngkin gets to work very fast targeting critical race theory and mask mandates in school. We'll talk about what a new Republican administration looks like in the Biden era plus we will have cocktail chatter. So I had this feeling as the Trump administration kind of careened around that every day, and when when in Trump world, every day, it was ADHD. It was like every day, everything happened. Like every single day, a million different things would happen. And it was exhausting because every single thing happened. In the Biden administration, it's almost like the the weird wicked reverse which is that every single day nothing much happens but the same nothing much endlessly happens like it's endlessly in the trump administration it was always infrastructure week and that was a joke because they never actually got around to it and the biden administration it's always infrastructure week because they're always getting actually getting around to it but in both cases it's the same sort of level of frustration with biden nothing happens with trump everything happens so i approach the biden anniversary in a little bit of a state of like, what the hell is going on? So, so Emily, start us off. Has Joe Biden, President Biden, had a good year or a bad year?
3: He had a pretty decent year in the beginning, and it has sort of slid downhill is the way I see it. So, you know, we started off, first of all, there's just the relief of the less drama and of uh, actually seating the elected president in the wake of January 6th. And then there's a lot of COVID relief that happens and a building up of the economy and a sense that COVID is being better managed and the vaccines roll out successfully. And then we hit the summer, and I think it's really like starting with Afghanistan, um, the, the you know, rushed withdrawal from Afghanistan that things start to feel like they're sliding. And, you know, since then, we've had at least so far the failure of the Build Better Act. And then this week, of course, this uh, failure on the Senate floor of these big pieces of voting rights legislation that Biden had said were crucial for democracy. And to see all of that go down... And no clear plan going forward seems like major defeats for the Democrats in the midst of inflation and these questions about the supply chain that are still making those stores seem emptier. And various other things that I think have Americans feeling really frazzled. COVID, the continuing problem of COVID, of course, perhaps chief among them. That's my year-long summary.
1: Good summary. So, John, the polling for Biden is quite terrible. I mean, his approval rating is... 40 right now is I think it disapproval is 56%. But what I think the most interesting data from the polling I saw, the Gallup uh, pointed out that this is the second most polarized polling year for any president. That means that the, the support from the people who support him uh, versus the opposition from the people who oppose him. It's, it's the gap is as wide as it's ever, it's ever been except for president Trump's last year in office. Right. And that in fact, the last four years, Trump's last 3 years and Biden's first are the most polarized years in Gallup's polling history. So it is true that Biden's polling is bad, but it's also part of this larger phenomenon right. that the country is incredibly polarized and what how do you how do you combine those two? The the sort of actual actual bullet right. Biden at this point with this larger trend.
2: Right, it's a great it's a great question and it gets to the bigger question of how you measure presidents because you know when you said that um, that nothing happens in the Biden administration. He talked about that in his two-hour iron-ass uh, press conference, which we should we should talk about. Two hours is is a pretty long time for a press conference. He doesn't give them frequently, but he gives them them at length. And he talked about the idea that one of the problems with the way we look at the presidency is the old line about the the lamppost. The cop finds the guy on his knees looking under the lamppost and he says, what are you doing? And he said, I'm looking for my keys. And he said, did you drop them here? And he says, no, but this is where the light is. And we tend to think presidents aren't doing anything if we don't see them doing it. And in fact, as we know from our reading, um, there's lots and lots and lots that presidents do that you don't see. Um, and you shouldn't see, which is to say they should be busy doing things and not hopping around in front of the cameras. but we don't live in an age where cameras are unimportant. So you have to get a mix. And that's what the press conference was about. But there are a lot of things that Biden has done, even that are not in the legislative realm, um, through executive orders, executive actions, the administrative state, that if you happen to be a Democrat or believe in in sort of his worldview, that are quite important on on the environment in particular. If you just total up the legislation he has passed, I believe this is true between the $1.9 trillion COVID relief package and the $1 trillion infrastructure package. It's $3 trillion worth of spending, a lot of it aimed towards democratic priorities. That's more in the first year. It's more almost, I think, maybe even than the total spending um, in the Obama years. So it comes to how do you measure expectations? And what approval rating tends to measure um, is within its own party, it measures expectations of, of of grandeur. And that's where you get to why hasn't he delivered on voting rights? Why hasn't he delivered on the elements as a part of that are a part of Build Back Better? The approval rating is not really people saying, Hmm, is he doing a good job or bad job on this? It becomes a kind of thermometer taking about the way they feel about life itself. And with COVID in awful shape, and people feeling inflation. It's essentially asking, you know, how are you feeling, which is an important metric to know in a democracy, but it's not a dispassionate examination of, of the presidency and whether Joe Biden is handling all the tasks of a president. We have to figure out that question on our own.
1: What do you think, Emily, that Biden could do, not necessarily to to rescue the Democrats for the 20 20- 22 election that seems like a lost cause they're going to lose at least one house of congress he will lose a governing majority such as he has uh there's i mean it would take a wild series of alien invasions for that not to happen but what could he do just to to get accomplished parts of his agenda that he wants to accomplish to help the voters that not the voters to help the citizens that he wants to help
3: I mean, it seems pretty clear right now that if there's going to be a deal on social spending pieces of the Build Back Better Act, it's going to come through Joe Manchin and Kristen Cinema, and it requires starting with what they want, not with what other people want, right? They just seem to hold all the cards. I mean, to the extent—look, first of all, they are two out of 50, and so— you can completely see why it's enormously frustrating to everybody else that they are holding things up. But they have shown that they are absolutely willing to do that, and they probably think they're benefiting from it politically. And so it seems like the path to a deal goes straight through them, and then that there could be some bipartisan deal on some parts of protecting against election subversion. And we could kind of move on from the idea that you have to also protect um, suppression of the vote, in order to do anything about what happens with counting and um, certifying the election afterward. So it seems to me like those are two paths forward for getting major pieces of legislation through. Now, whether the Republicans at this point will just be totally unwilling to deal on voting because they think that the best thing they can do is to further weaken Biden and the Democrats for
1: 2022, like, that may be the case. Yeah. He's not going to get any Republican help from anybody. Um, you don't think he'd get anything on on reforming the electoral count act, which Republicans have talked about, John
2: yeah, maybe, maybe, I don't know. I mean once you you know once you get all the pressure on Republicans who've talked about dealing with him, and particularly since. You know, in his press conference, it was clear that Biden wanted to do two things, show that he was focused on inflation. And just to pause on inflation for a moment, in CBS's most recent poll, 43% of Democrats disapproved of his handling of inflation. 43% of your own party disapproving of something is a a very big number in these partisan times where parties rally around their standard bearer kind of no matter what. And so he was clearly trying to show that he's got some answer for that and also that he's doing something on COVID. His second big point, though, was basically to try to turn 2022 not from a referendum on him, but a a choice between the two parties. He went after Republicans in what is perfectly within the bounds of politics, but the Republicans are responding in the way that parties always do with a lot of uh, umbrage taking in the context of that umbrage taking it seems hard to see at the very last minute if republicans are going to do something to to help him but you know maybe that maybe that environment changes
1: i worry this kind of previews a little bit our next topic i worry that biden In his attempt to use the power of the presidency, the executive powers of the presidency will be tempted by the same thing presidents are always tempted by, which is that when presidents are constrained domestically and legislatively, or by the courts, it's like, there's always foreign policy. And, like, you can imagine, there there were presidents in our past who've been like, I am not, nothing's going very well, I think I'm in a bomb somewhere. I don't think this is his temperament, but I hope he doesn't end up bombing things just to feel relevant.
3: Well, in that context, um, we were concerned about him talking about Russia invading Ukraine because that's the current hotspot.
2: Yeah, yeah. But in but in that context, he was actually. I mean, had the problem they're cleaning up the day after the press conference, in which he tried to clean up at the end of the press conference or, or as it went on, was that he basically said, you know, if it's a low level incursion, you know, if it's a, if it's a starter incursion, um, yeah, uh, the then starter, we're the gonna starter pack. Yeah, yeah, exactly. The exactly. exactly. Part of if it's incursion 1.0, um, uh, the you know he was basically saying you know we're going to not be so harsh on them. But then even when he said when he sort of suggested the full blown, uh, I guess you know tanks rumbling across the frozen tundra and lots of ground troops, even that he suggested would be responded to with only sanctions. So he he was kind of at least in terms of his press conference. Going in quite the opposite direction, right. which was to say to Russia, like, "Have at it." I mean, that's I'm obviously overstating it, but um, you know, as opposed to saying we're, we've got planes flying in a loop around uh, Ukraine, you know,
1: ready to shoot you if you do anything. Do you guys find Biden's uninterestingness as a president welcome or frustrating? Trump was so interesting, but in a this wicked way, in a, in a way that was for me completely repellent, and I, I probably for the last three years, of the Trump presidency never willingly watched him do anything because I, it was painful. Biden, I never willingly watched do anything because it's boring and because I just don't want to think about it most of the time. Is this anti-charisma something that is valuable or, or damaging to him?
3: I mean, I like being able to not think about it very much or certainly as much, but then I have this existential dread that we're going to look back on this period as the moment when we didn't put up strong guardrails to protect the democracy and it's going to come back to haunt us. And I start feeling like ignoring it is part of that problem to the extent I do that. And then I get really worried.
2: But the, the challenges to that are nothing that Biden can solve. I mean if Joe and if Manchin and Sinema don't want to change the filibuster, right. Joe right. Biden can't do anything about it. And one right. of the problems with him and his party, if you look at Democratic if you look at the Democrats within the polling in terms of his disapproval rating uh, and the weakening in his approval rating, he was in the 90s sort of on the general approval rating question with Democrats, he's now in the 70s, which means Democrats have you know lost their love and if part of the reason they've lost their love is because he can't get Joe Manchin and, and uh, Kirsten Cinema to do what he wants on voting rights, that's a misunderstanding of the tools that he has. And so he's being punished for something that he thats not his fault for. Um, and and for Democrats who need to rally to I mean, they're not going to stay in power, probably. But that's a message that that they should probably all come together on.
3: Yeah, it just seems to me like it's taken them an awfully long time to get that message. Now I would like them to do something about election subversion with whatever it takes to overcome the filibuster, even if it's relatively small, as long as it doesn't make things worse.
1: (laughs) Right. Well,
2: even that's a high bar.
1: But the other the other thing that voters could well be blaming Biden for which is not not his fault is that the COVID stuff has not been great. They right. were not ready right. for Delta. They were not ready for Omicron. I wasn't either. Not, I'm not saying like I was prepared. Uh, oh, but I it's not either. your job. But uh, <laughs> but they weren't ready. And and the inflation again. I think their their tools to control it are limited. But they're not um, people. You can understand why people are annoyed by it
2: a hundred percent yeah we don't want to leave the impression that that he's not without fault i mean inflation was democrats and Republicans, economists saw it coming they said if you spend the money you're spending on the relief bill you're going to get inflation and they said no it's transitory they made the wrong call biden was trying very hard to explain how build back better and things that he's done already with the infrastructure bill are going to help help with inflation but there's that um you know i think there's uh as, as Jim Fallows said in a piece we did for Sunday morning on Afghanistan, it was always going to be messy, but there is plenty of fair commentary for whether the way the Biden team misunderstood how quickly the country would fall means that they made a messy situation messier. And then on COVID, they didn't, they campaigned on a special acuity for understanding how to handle pandemics, which wasn't just like, we're going to get vaccines in people's arms, which they did uh, successfully. And could they have uh, predicted there'd be such ideological vaccine hesitancy? Maybe not. But they campaigned on the idea that they would have the agility and twitch muscles to be able to handle anything that came at them. and,
1: And they haven't. Can we close uh, just a totally separate subject on something I noticed as I was reading for preparation, which is, so reading quotes from Republicans, it's very interesting. I noticed that Republicans who want to describe the situation and talk about the Trump administration of go out of their way to avoid saying Trump's name. So there's this quote, I'm going to read a quote from Stephen Law, who's a former aide to McConnell, who heads the Senate leadership fund. A super PAC. And he said, he believes that, quote, almost nobody voted for Biden. They voted against the other guy. Blah, blah, blah. The dominant Biden argument, I'm going to fix this COVID issue. And the previous president wasn't able to do it. The Biden White House has become everything candidate Biden was said was wrong against his predecessor, Law said. And to me, like, and I saw, I noticed this with this quote, and then a couple other quotes. And I was like, oh, these guys don't want to have their name. Well, if anyone does a search for Trump's name and them, they do not want to be near it, Hmm. like they don't want anyone to be able to grab onto them saying anything that is not praiseworthy about Trump.
2: But that's one wing of the party. The McConnell, um, Stephen Law wing tends to see the Senate races as fights over a bigger, broader electorate and not the MAGA primary electorate. And so... That's the part of the party that has a tactical approach to victory. And in fact, when you, when you listen to Mitch McConnell talk about these Senate races, he said, you know, he remembers back to the year that Christine O'Donnell ran in Delaware in 2014, I'm talking about, and um, Sharon Angle ran in, in Nevada. Can- candidates that were so beyond the pale that they lost in seats they should have won. So Stephen Law is going to give you, is going to talk about it that way. But the MAGA world still exists, and they'll be happy to say Trump's name.
1: No, no, of course. No, of course, I guess I guess uh, your interpretation is obviously much smarter and more sophisticated, John. I guess I was thinking like that if you are somebody who does want to have a role in Trump's life, but also wants to be able to be an honest, relatively kind of clear thinking, honest person now, that one way to do that is just to never say his name so that when people do their Google search on you, they don't show you deploring him.
2: I think we are both right. Can I just say one thing that that. Interests me and confuses me a little bit is that, I mean, if you look at in if you look at inflation, it's not good. But the employment numbers, it's like down to three point nine. You know, states like Virginia, it's at three point six. Employment is a thing that people used to freak out about all the time. Employment is pretty good, and whatever Biden policies have been passed and the promise of um, throbbing socialism has not changed the trajectory of jobs, which has been really good. It's CEO survey taken recently asked them how optimistic they are the number was the highest it's been in the last 12 years
1: did you so can you i'm a ceo do you want to survey me Ask yes me.
2: david
3: on a scale david, of one to five. are you optimistic
1: <laughs> i'm a i'm a seven i'm You're a three seven. i'm a three those Wait, are the
3: non-answers seven and oh three. my god
1: you've got blue <laughs> you broke <laughs> what color is the blackboard
2: oh
3: god <laughs>
2: Um, And so, uh, did either of you guys watch the press conference? No. No. I mean, he went on for two hours. What interests me is even at the end of the second hour, he kept self-correcting things that he was about to say. His attention to and the things he knows about that's going on in um, in his presidency and whether he's right or wrong about the policies being applied to the various issues, his grasp of his brief was... Was considerable and obviously comparing it to the previous president um, like night and day. Well, that's good. Yeah, unless you think his policies are all awful. So then he has a grasp of awful policies. But at least he uh, at least he knows what he's trying to do on basically all the questions he was asked.
1: Slate Plus members. You get bonus segments every week on the Gabfest. If you go to slate.com slash gabfest Plus, you can become a member today. Our bonus segment this week is we're going to talk about journaling. It's a John Dickerson special. Mm-hmm. Journaling. Do you journal? Do you not journal? Why do you journal? What is journaling? Anyway, and uh, our Slate Plus segments are some of the most fun that we have on the show. They're delightful. They're interesting. They're often weird and sometimes quite deep and philosophical. So go to slate.com slash gabfest Plus to become a member. You also get so much else you get member-exclusive episodes uh, on other shows, you get no ads on podcasts, you get unlimited reading on the Slate site, it's great. So, slate.com slash plus. This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX is the veil now streaming only on Hulu.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail from accepting payments to managing inventory. Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system.
1: Emily, this is, I cannot wait. This is some, there's some days when it's like, you're waiting for Emily Bazelon. You just need a little dose of Emily Bazelon legal analysis. And this is such a day. So the Supreme Court talks. That's every day. That's, well, it is every day. Uh, you're overselling especially you today.
3: I appreciate it, but you are. <laughs>
1: The Supreme Court tossed the Biden vaccine or test OSHA mandate for employers last Thursday, shortly after we taped our show last week. So you have been marinating. You have been pickling in that decision ever since. It was, of course, companioned with a judgment upholding the rule requiring health care workers to get vaxxed if they were at places receiving Medicare and Medicaid money. But this OSHA ruling for large employers feels like a huge deal, and it is a much bigger deal even than itself. Talk about it itself and why it's maybe a bigger deal or why it presages bigger changes from this uh, Supreme Court.
3: Well, the big deal in itself is that the federal uh, vaccine mandate or testing requirement for employers, so really for employees, is gone. It's not going to go into effect. The court did allow the vaccine mandate for healthcare workers to go into effect. That's under under a separate set of laws that um, involve federal funding through Medicare and Medicaid. But this idea that we were going to have a broad-based vaccine mandate through employers that was going to affect 84 million people is off the table. I wonder what we all think about the timing of that and the impact of that at this stage of the pandemic. But to hold that for a second, I mean, I think the first thing about this opinion is that it – really limits the reach of the Occupational Safety and Health Act, which Congress passed in 1970. I mean, the court said OSHA couldn't impose the vaccine or testing mandate because COVID is not a risk that's confined to the workplace. It's everywhere. But of course, that's also true about things like fire and asbestos and other harms that OSHA routinely regulates. And so then there's this sort of one line where the conservative majority says, well, but, you know, if you have to have fire regulation in the workplace, that stops at the end of the workday and vaccines are different. And that's kind of it for the logic there. And then, you know, what the liberal justices say in dissent is much more tied to the actual words of the statute. There's an irony here. Usually, it's the conservatives that are big textualists. There's very little textualism going on in the majority opinion. The liberals on the other hand point out that in 1970 when Congress enacted this law, it was doing so to ensure so far as possible every working man and woman in the nation safe and healthful working conditions and It gave OSHA this emergency power that only lasts for six months, by the way, to issue mandatory standards if OSHA determines that employees are exposed to grave danger from exposure to substances or agents determined to be toxic or physically harmful or from new hazards. And that kind of language would seem to apply very much to covid And yet it didn't in this instance. You also asked about, you know, what this presages in terms of the court's approach to administrative agency power more broadly. That part in its really, like, huge ramifications comes about in an opinion by Justice Gorsuch, which he only had two other votes for, I will note. But he basically said that if OSHA was allowed to have this broad kind of power, it would probably be unconstitutional under this idea called the Non-Delegation Doctrine, which is basically that Congress can't just, like, write a vaguely worded statute and hand it over to the admi- the administrative agencies to fill in all the details, That doctrine has not been our law at all, and yet Gorsuch tried to revive it in an opinion a couple of years ago. It is lurking as just an enormous change to the way federal agencies exercise their power. It's not clear that Gorsuch has five votes for this approach yet, and the fact that he only had three for his opinion this time, I guess, means something. But it is out there, and it sort of seems to me like this train that is barreling down the track.
2: Uh, so I have uh, two questions, but but first I want to get back to the non-delegation doctrine because obviously, it requires Congress to actually do work. Um, and when the mm. reason they write those laws in such a gauzy way is often because they want to avoid a tough vote on a, on a specific thing. But on this idea that that the mandate lasts after the work day, it doesn't if it's testing.
0: Good point.
2: And now I'm going to behave like like the, person at the soccer game who doesn't pay any attention to politics and say if they called it a testing and vaccine mandate in other words made testing david wisely at the at the beginning of the show noted that the mandate is to be tested or vaccinated so it, it it but it always is referred to as a vaccine mandate by people like me and i wonder if the if the language had been changed differently if if that would have been a more obvious glaring error in their reasoning
3: i mean maybe it's right there in the federal order and i feel like actually Democrats tried to nudge the press to always talk about it as a vaccine or testing mandate. Like, I remember getting those scolding little reminders, which, I mean, maybe it would have made a difference. The court just sort of, the majority skipped right over what you just said, and I think it's part of why the logic just really fails
2: here.
1: Emily, can you actually connect what you were just saying to this term I had never heard because I'm an ignoramus until this week, the major questions doctrine? Because it, it appears that what Gorsuch is is trying to revive, or Gorsuch is trying to make standard jurisprudence, is is it something that I certainly didn't know about, but is apparently is is hot toddy over on conservative legal circles
3: well you didn't know about it because it's not something that has come up a lot before and think about it it's incredibly subjective this idea Can you that, just like,
1: explain what it is
3: yeah so the idea here again goes back to like the clarity of the statute and the idea is that if you're going to have a major question that a statute is settling that congress has to be very very clear about what it's doing one way to think about this in terms of the the law issue here is the language I read earlier, which gives this agency emergency power when it thinks there's a, quote, new hazard in the workplace. Is that a really smart and way to legislate because you're not going to be able to anticipate every single thing. Or do you want Congress to lay it out? Do you want Congress to say, in the event of a pandemic, in the event of a meteor strike that affects the workplace? I don't know. Do you want Congress to have a list? And often what we see, especially in these 1970s statutes that have given agencies broad power, is some kind of list, but then a sort of catch-all clause that says, like, and anything else it wants to do. And the court has gotten very, very leery of that kind of language. I would argue the language in this statute is clearer than usual because of this new hazard provision. But the idea is like, well, that's too big a question in the court's eyes for a law to apply when Congress didn't say you can have a vaccine or testing mandate in a pandemic.
1: So if you take this to its logical conclusion, if you take this theory of Gorsuch, the major questions doctrine to its logical conclusion, there's much more constrained administrative power, federal power, presidential power, because you can't simply tell your your agencies, well, this is a broad reading of this act from 1973, so we can go ahead and and do X, Y, and Z. That is now much more narrow, because, because what Supreme Court would be saying is, no, it has to have been legislated by Congress. So, so the president's power is constrained. But we all know that Congress is itself a a totally uh, paralyzed, you know, calcified institution, inactive, unresponsive, gridlocked, very, it's very hard for them to do anything and certainly nothing at the level of specificity that you're talking about. So we know that the Congress isn't going to do anything. And then there's this idea also in the Chevron deference, this idea that judges should stay out of the way of these decisions anyway. So in this world that Gorsuch envisions, is it just that the power of the government is massively constrained and it's it's sort of laissez-faire late 19th century again? Is that the is that what the, the goal?
3: Well, right. So chevron deference, which is the doctrine that is governed since the eighties, is this idea that if you have statutory language that's ambiguous and the agency makes a reasonable interpretation of it, the courts will defer to that interpretation. That gives agencies pretty wide scope, right? Like you can see how that would increase them as the decision maker. This major questions doctrine, who gets to decide if it's a major question? Well, the Supreme Court does. And in fact, the reason you had never heard of this before is that the citations that Gorsuch gives when he's bringing this up are from 2021 and an opinion that he wrote in 2019. So this is like a very recent creation. And what this is all about is which part of the government is going to make the call and the court is claiming well it's not on us it's on congress but the but truth congress is can. sorry
1: yeah, no, sorry. I would just go ahead. I was preparing to be like, but Congress won't. Well, and pre- the president, now they're saying the president can't either. So who does? Well, so you have nobody.
3: Right. Or you have the Supreme Court effectively deciding that like this is too big a deal and taking it on itself not to allow this vaccine or testing mandate to go forward. I mean, there is some ideal world in which Congress is forced to become clearer and more precise in what it legislates. And That could be a perfectly good thing. The problem is, what do we do in the meantime? Is that really possible? You know, there's a whole question about staffing capacity. So, you know, our members of Congress, they have folks who work for them, but they don't have, like, legions of lobbyists the way private and nonprofit and union actors do. And so you could argue that if you force Congress to get incredibly specific and write, you know, very detailed statutes that amount to regulations, you're just going to be handing that power over to the lobbyists who are the ones who are really going to be doing all of that homework. Whereas now we delegate that to the people who work in the agencies who can fill in these details about, you know, what a real risk is from mercury in the water or whatever. And so that's another sort of part of this whole question of who decides.
1: But John, John I guess what I'm trying to get at is in a world where you strip federal agencies of a significant amount of power and thus the president of a significant amount of power. Where does power live? Is it just that um, it moves out to the private sector?
2: Well, so it depends on the it depends on which area of uh, the government we're talking about. But it means there are no there aren't rules. And for some people, that's great. Other people, Joe Biden said in his press conference on Wednesday, I'm a capitalist, but um, but capitalism can't be totally unfettered. And so In the areas in which you don't have regulations, capitalism gallops, people fend for for themselves. I mean, in a larger world where Congress actually works, this would be, I mean, I'm just repeating what you said, David, but... It really should point us back to the deficiencies of Congress, not just that they don't like deal with stuff. They don't even have to vote on dealing with stuff because they've created a system where nobody, you know, where lots of tough votes are are hidden. And also, you know, the the question is whether small provisions or small things that Congress might write in greater detail could even survive the political nature of debate these days, because we get things, um, you know, the death panels is a good example. Just mass massive distortions of parts of law that are written perhaps by the experts in, in Congress who spend a lot of time having hearings and thinking about these things and getting a broad diversity of views. But then politics and the structure of it take over and something gets called death panels. and then nobody on a certain party wants to vote for it or against it because of the you know because they'll get primaried. And so the idea that Congress is the place to deal with anything of, of um, difficulty and specificity is, is in particular peril these days.
3: But if you'd rather have fewer laws and regulations anyway, as libertarians like Gorsuch would prefer, then this is all gravy. Right.
2: Right. And also, by the way, this goes back to your original question, David, is the extent to which this is a a ruling that is tailored to fit a policy that conservative justices don't like, which is to say mandating vaccines, we've already talked about the testing portion of it, would this be equally applied if you have a conservative White House using the administrative state in all the great ways it knows how to do it? Remember, briefly, just before Donald Trump was elected, one of the great successes of the Trump administration is that he basically handed off the regulatory work that was done before he was ever in office to Karl Rove and a group he put together of former government lawyers who basically wrote up the game plan for the early period of regulation under the Trump administration. And they did very successfully did a number of things. Now, a lot of things they did was just remove regulations. But there's a way in which conservatives use regulation in the administration state for their goals, too. And then obviously, the question is whether these these ideas would be, uh, you know, equally applied.
1: Emily, are we going to do what? Do what we have here is is sort of a a three headed court where you have a liberal wing which wants obviously to maintain this uh, power of, of federal agencies. You have a sort of libertarian Gorsuchy wing which Alito and Thomas are happy to be part of. I wouldn't call them libertarians. I mean, but, but anti regulatory. and well, they're big anti- in a
3: rush, is what they are. Yeah. Go ahead. Um,
1: and then in the middle in the middle, at least intellectually in the middle, is like, I think of Roberts and and Kavanaugh who were very much creatures of the White Houses that they worked in and the administrations they worked in as being being much more aligned with the idea there's a lot of federal power invested in the executive. Let's let the executive do what they want and that there's going to be a tension between them and the Gorsuch side of this.
3: I mean, maybe. I actually think from the previous 2019 decision where Gorsuch wrote about the non-delegation doctrine that it seems pretty clear that Kavanaugh is probably on board when the right case comes along. And then that leaves Justice Barrett, who I think you didn't mention a second ago, and, uh, you know, well, we just don't know what she thinks. I mean, it it is interesting that this time Gorsuch only had Alito and Thomas, but the obvious explanation for that in my mind is that this is a huge thing. And so to do it... In a case where it's not necessary, they had other grounds, um, you know, thin as they may have been for blocking the mandate. And also, this case is at a very early stage. I mean, we didn't even talk about the fact that the court was supposed to be balancing the equities. This is about whether to grant a stay, not the sort of on the merits final decision stage of the case. And so it would have been really a thunderbolt if there had been a majority (laughs) rule for the idea that, you know, this broader interpretation of um osha's powers was actually unconstitutional but it still could very plausibly have five votes i'm not sure about roberts but there are still five conservatives without roberts
1: and this there's this big west virginia versus the epa case coming up which could be
3: which is related to all of this and federal power
2: yes
1: took the governor's office in a state that had been trending blue, had been going blue quite hard, but Yunkin, a Republican businessman, um, did this one by talking a ton about critical race theory and a ton about how parents needed more control over what their kids are being taught in public school and by tapping into anger about the COVID response and COVID in schools in particular. As governor, John, he's coming out hot. He, he issued an executive order banning the teaching of inherently divisive concepts, including critical race theory. I want to know what the other inherently divisive concepts are, like, oh, yeah. you know, a hot dog is a sandwich or something. Um, <laughs> he, he also immediately issued an executive order exempting students from mask mandates that are uh, present for a lot of the state's school systems, like the biggest school systems in the state all have mask mandates for their students and teachers. And he said that from now on, parents can decide with their, whether their students uh, wear a mask or mm-hmm. not at school. What do you make of this uh, bang-up start from Governor Youngkin? Oh, and, well, he, fire, well, sense, and he fired the Conviction Integrity Unit, or the his Attorney General, at fired the Conviction Integrity Unit. In the, the Which I
2: should weigh in on. Um, well, it's, in some sense, it's predictable. Candidates come, you know, they run on things, they come in, they... they do the things as best they can that they've promised to do. And they can always then say, you know, promises made, promises kept. What will be interesting to me and that what I like about what's happening in Virginia is you have a Republican governor, but a split legislature with Republicans and Democrats split. And so you're going to have lots of fights over these. The mask mandate will be tussled. The individual school districts, including the one in Richmond where Youngkin lives, have um, refused to listen to him. And it's kind of the place you want these fights taking place, even though we've seen them taking place in really ugly and heated and awful ways. And one of the opportunities for greatness for the governor is not just to dunk on his first day, as you would expect any politician to do, but then to mellow over time and show the country, since it appears he has national ambitions, how you adjudicate these tough issues without just playing to the people who you needed to turn out in and off your election to, to elect you. Well, one quick interjection is that the critical race theory, what will be interesting is he's asked for a report in 90 days identifying the kinds of teaching that goes on in the schools that might run afoul of his executive order. And you wonder, Virginia is is not a state without its racial history. So what happens on, you know— June 12th, which is Loving Day, named after Loving v. Virginia, which was the Supreme Court case that overruled the Racial Integrity Act of 1924 in Virginia, which said you can't have blacks and whites married. Do you not talk about that? That's pretty recent. That's not just, you know, slavery in the in the 17th century. And there are a number of these things that it'll be interesting how that 90-day report uh, comes down. And obviously, Virginia was the seat of the Confederacy. So, when he appoints people to the education boards, is he appointing people who just have an ideological view but care about the underlying thing? Or is he just appointing hacks? And that matters particularly with health. So what you've seen in a lot of these anti-mask mandate states is that people in charge of public health tend to be more political. And so they say what the governors who don't like mask mandates want. Okay, that's fine. But what happens when you get the next pandemic or the other big, you know, public health issue that faces the state? Are the people who've been named going to be any good at doing their basic job? And those seem to me to be big questions going forward in Virginia and other states where you've had these more ideological
1: appointments. Emily, how long do you think these mask mandate fights are going to go on? I mean, I I'm going to end up and saying something I'm going to regret. I just am, I'm sort of sympathetic to where Yunkin and his and his crowd is here that it's just to pretend there's no cost to, to, to education, to learning, to socialization and and just be inflexible about this feels like, I don't know, feels like feels like a feels like last year's battle to me and that we have to get beyond this at some point. But maybe maybe not yet.
3: Well, I guess the question for the timing seemed really odd. Like, Omicron is starting to ebb in the Northeast and the places it started. Um, And I think maybe you guys have turned a corner in D.C., but it's not come all the way back down again. So, like, if he was doing this, let's assume that the cases continue to, you know, fall, that hospitalizations also fall afterward. If he did this in three weeks after that had happened, it would seem to be like much more common sense public health measure, whereas now it just seems like deliberately politically divisive. And then what I worry about is then the people who want to keep the masks dig in. Um, I mean, this is what happened in the, you know, spring or summer of 2020, when Trump called for opening the schools, all of a sudden, like that was politicized. And that's been the problem with these mass mandates in schools. So I mean, I share your impatience, David, in the sense that like, they can't go on forever, they do impose a cost on kids. But this just seems like very politically loaded timing this particular week to do this.
1: Well, I mean, he is a new governor, and he did promise it, so I suppose it's politically loaded, only in the sense that he just started his office. Well, I mean, right, I, but I ate, mean, I, I, you're
3: supposed to, like, look out the window yeah. at what's happening, and if you have, like, <laughs> uh, raging infections—I mean, the well, other thing but, is, like—
1: But, it, but like, I guess I'm—sorry, go ahead. No, no, you go. Well, I, I, I was in Northern Virginia—I ate inside in Northern Virginia this past weekend, which I— I haven't been eating inside in restaurants very much, but I was like, I you know, I would like So I went to a restaurant I love of seventy five. I hadn't been there in a long time, a pho place in Northern Virginia. It's a room oh, about the size. Yeah. It's a room about the size of a classroom. It was totally packed. There were like seventy people in there. There's no mass mandate. I mean it's it's just like the weird we've all pointed this out a hundred times, but just the endless hypocrisy. It's like you're allowing all these adult vectors of transmission. There's no ma- vaccine requirement to get in there. There's nothing. It's just like go in there, transmit your Omicron, have a great bowl of soup, and move on. And then it's like, oh, but you kids have to wear your masks, Which a they're wearing cloth masks. They're wearing them badly. They you know take them off the second they don't have to. I mean, it's just it's just a it's just a, it just feels like a a fight that is. I don't know. Well, I, I mean,
3: if know. you're going to ask me whether we have correctly prioritized children relative to adults, I'm going to say no, we <laughs> yes. have not. I know. I, have I, know, that I way, know. I know. I know. the whole way through. Yes. So, yes. I am not really a very good arguer for the other side. I will right. say though, the one thing I've really appreciated um in hearing from teachers and other people who work in schools is just the strain the system is under right now. I mean, the staffing shortages they're dealing with, you know, especially, you know, for like under-resourced public school systems, of which we have many, this was not like a super vibrant situation to begin with. And so you've put people in this position where they're doing their jobs under more difficult circumstances with worse results. Like kids are having behavioral problems, academic achievement is lower. It's all just kind of grim. And so I would say that like to pick right this moment to force the places like Arlington and Fairfax in Virginia that wanted to keep the mandate for the mass to stop right now when Obicron isn't over seems like too much to me.
2: Yeah. Did you just call
1: faux soup? I'm sure I did call faux soup.
2: Didn't? Weren't you on the other side of that issue in our? No, government?
1: absolutely not. Oh, it, was, it was oh, okay. my soup. It was the soup I picked to to be on the menu every day.
2: Oh, okay. All right. I thought you were. I think I. I, I may I'd be many things, issue, John whatever.
1: Dickerson. I'm not a <laughs> soup hypocrite.
2: I thought I raised the issue whether pho was soup and I was I thought I was shouted down at, that it is not a soup. Emily
1: has um, these crazy views about it.
3: I thought we were supposed to be calling it pho. That's my only yeah. contribution.
1: Oh I'm, yeah. I'm I'm toggling. Sorry. Uh, Sorry to have taken
2: us absolutely into the ditch.
1: Anyway, Emily, uh, to conclude this, you're absolutely right. Yes, the strain of the school system is just profound and I suppose them maybe the mass mandate helps reduce the strain a little bit maybe but it, i don't know i mean i've
3: let's revisit this in a few there are weeks. other th-
1: i suspect there are other things that could also reduce the strain and I, I you know just seeing my what my own uh son is going through and and how hard his school is working his teachers are working it's it is it's inspiring but it does make you it just makes you feel tremendous it's um, really
3: hard it is uh, a very bumpy month for kids and parents and schools
1: let's go to cocktail chatter uh when you are sitting emily back in new england back in your beloved new england now having a a, a fine crafted new england craft beer although i don't think you drink beer maybe you do. i do sometimes uh, a new england craft beer what will you be chattering about with your new england family
3: I want to recommend a podcast, season two of a series called Deep Cover that Pushkin puts out. Pushkin is run by our former boss, Jacob Weisberg. And this season two, it's called Land. It's about a lawyer in Chicago in the 1980s who decides to turn on the mob and start informing and about what led to that decision and what unraveled afterward. It is, um it has a sort of feeling of like gumshoe 1980s crime, true crime, mob reporting. One of those stories that can only be told historically because people would never tell the truth or really talk at all about these events. And my friend, Jake Halpern, who's the host, just does a great job weaving through. So if you're looking for a good narrative series podcast, I recommend this, Mobland Deep Cover Season 2 from Pushkin. And it is out on January 24th, and it's in... um, what do we say? It's wherever you get your podcasts.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it's everywhere. <laughs> everywhere you get your podcasts. John Dickerton, what's your chatter?
2: Well, I also am um, chattering about a podcast, sort of, roughly. So um, wherever you go to get your your fresh, shrink-wrapped podcasts, uh, whether it's the feed supply store or uh, your local grocery freezer, the Take Note podcast, Adam Webb, who is um, one of the two who uh, started the Take Note podcast, Podcast Ted Walker is the other is is a Gabfest listener. God love him. Basically, the podcast and the and the website that's associated with it is all about notebooks and attention and parenting and you know this life we lead, uh, which is a you know all of which are are. Topics and ideas near and dear to my heart, but he also posted on the blog that goes along with the the Take Note podcast a series of an answer to my question last week about writers and people who keep and take notes. Um, And so I encourage you to go check out the podcast and um, and that post about the various note takers in the world because there were a lot of people who responded. There are a lot of people out there who for one reason or another consider themselves note takers in the world.
1: I have a couple of chatters. First, a wild story in the Washington Post this week about a retired professor named Lawrence Gray, who is for many years the consort to a woman named Jacqueline Quillen, who is an heiress and a wine expert. Quillen died a year ago, and Gray is now being sued by Quillen's kids, who accuse him of absconding with tens of thousands of dollars of her jewels and selling them at consignment places. And also, even more weirdly, He's being accused and, in fact, now charged with going to rich people's houses as as Quillen's consort and uh, stealing jewels from their houses. And he's being, in one case, a $32,000 diamond and sapphire brooch that he took from a house in Newport. He's accused of taking from a house in Newport. It's just a great story about uh, rich people, the weird people who hang around rich rich people, rich people's objects and uh, money and wills and heirs. It's great. To check it out in the post and then just some log rolling as usual for citycast i need you to come work with me dear listeners we are growing at citycast again and in particular we're growing in seven new cities and we're going to hire people in seven new cities in particular we're looking for lead producers right now in seven cities so if you are some someone who loves atlanta or austin or boston or columbus ohio or philadelphia or portland oregon or raleigh-durham research triangle area please come work with us we are we are hiring in all of those cities and we're going to launch podcasts and newsletters in all of those cities and they're going to be great and we're having a ton of fun doing this at citycast we're already in five cities we're about to launch in three or four more so go to citycast.fm slash jobs John Dickerson, question: Would you like a question? To come work a question from the
2: audience. Yes, a point of parliamentary procedure. What if you are a listener to the Gabfest and are an enthusiast, but don't necessarily have podcast or radio experience?
1: Um, uh, there, we have lots of different kinds of jobs, so it's true we are mostly right now looking for people with with actual audio experience, production experience, who can make a daily podcast and either make. Uh, as the lead producer or as a regular producer, but we're also looking for writers for newsletters. We're looking for hosts. So most of our hosts are people who don't have direct podcast or audio experience. They're people who are just great talkers. So in any case, check it out citycast.fm slash jobs, or write me a note at david.plots at citycast.fm and tell me about yourself. Can't wait to hear from you. One more time, Atlanta, Austin, Boston, Columbus, Philly, Portland, and the research triangle. Listeners, keep sending us chatter. You keep sending us chatter at gabfest at slate.com or you tweet them to us at at slate gabfest. And there's some really good ones. And this one comes from Elisa this week. And it's really fun.
0: Hi, this is Elisa Sergis from Reno, Nevada. My cocktail chatter is a Twitter feed by Alison Robicelli who missed her connecting flight and had to spend the night at O'Hare. Without any other passengers around, she skipped down the moving sidewalk, laid in the rotunda for 10 minutes, played in a free video arcade, found a secret passageway, and slid across the floor in her socks. Being stuck in airports makes all of us pretty grumpy, but her magical photos and sense of humor made me hope I get stuck overnight sometime. If you're looking for some lightness and want to know what, and I quote, a dinosaur's butt looks like from the inside, you'll love this story.
2: There's a dinosaur there because... It was still waiting for its flight from the Paleolithic.
1: <laughs> I think that would it would be really hard to fit a dinosaur on most airplanes. Really, really hard. And they're super annoying about their overhead baggage. Oh my god, for sure.
3: I loved the creativity. They, they of definitely this...
1: mansplain. What? Man, not mansplain, manspread. They take they take up like seats, four or five seats.
3: I'd like to see the mansplaining from the dinosaur. That would be really excellent.
1: It's
2: it's just really loud, that? and it's it's one word. It's Rah! Just like...
3: <laughs> Explains it all.
2: Your view on textualization is totally wrong. I
1: would, can you can you take us out as I just do credits, John? Can you just can you just do some dinosaur mansplaining? That's our show for today. The Political Gap Gabfest is produced by Jocelyn Frank. Our researcher is Bridget Dunlap. June Thomas is managing producer. Alicia Montgomery is executive producer of Slate Podcast. Follow us on Twitter at @slategabfest. Double raw. We tweet. Chatter to us there for Emily Bazelon and Tyrannosaurus Dickerson. I am David Plotz. Thanks for listening. One two three. John. One two three. Rawr. <laughs>
3: I guess I should have gotten in on that last one.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Hello, Slate Plus. How are you? Uh, I'm just going to hand this over to John because it's his question. And the answer for me is I do not. So go ahead.
2: The question was about do do you journal, why do you or don't you? This is distinct from my cocktail chatter about note-taking, which I think is what got got me thinking about this. Because note-taking for me is about observation and the daily thing journaling is a very different process which I have done off and on I guess since I was a teenager in high school uh and um but I won't let's Emily do you keep a journal or have you ever journaled
3: I don't keep a journal I did it when I was little I don't even think I was a teenager I might have done it a little bit as a teenager the closest I've Come which I also haven't done for a long time, but are letters. So I remember there was a time when I really wrote like long letters, particularly over the summer, to France. Yeah. But I don't do that anymore either. An email completely does not qualify, nor just texting.
2: I write letters, but I don't write I don't write long letters. And the long letter is its own interesting literary form, like what you choose to explain and what you choose to talk about, and do you talk about yourself or do you ask questions? Um, the state of epistolary exchange uh, should be something we inquire into further. Um, but since neither of you two journal, why have you never journaled, David?
1: <sighs> uh, I don't know. I did, when my marriage was falling apart, I had some Google Docs where I, I wrote notes to myself, and I once made the terrible mistake of going back and looking at them, and it was just, it was so painful that I I... I, I'm, I'm sure I could find it. Google Docs doesn't lose things. But I don't know. I think, John, the truth is that I'm not an introspective person. And I'm not good at being introspective. And I'm just, I'm kind of good at like living and moving forward. And so it has always felt like kind of counter to how I move in the world. But that's, I'm sure that's a bad reason. I'm sure that's a stupid reason.
2: It's so fascinating because you are, you both are, um, big question askers. In other words, you don't stop at just the accepted view of things. And also, as the world pedals by, you say, oh, I wonder why this is like this or this is like that. And that's, you know, one of the great traits that I learned from both of you when I came to to Slate is not just the questions we ask in work, but just to be much more of an alive question asker, which is what journaling (laughs) Um, Can be.
1: Can you, okay, I have questions for you. When do you do it? How long do you do it? What's the distinction between a journal and a diary? GabFest fans, that was just a teaser. To hear the rest of our Slate Plus conversation, go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus to become a Slate Plus member today.
0: Step into the world of power, loyalty.